Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, and welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. This week, we're thrilled to bring you my conversation with Alted Lou Dennis of Initialized Capital. Founded in 2011 and self-described as the Honey Badgers of Venture, the firm has been early backers of such legendary companies such as Coinbase and Instacart. Before joining Initialized Capital in 2017, Alda was a managing partner at 137 Ventures, where she led investments in Planet Labs, Wish, Coupang, Coursera, and WorkMarket. She also brings a wealth of experience on the operating side as she was COO at Airtime and also was general counsel at both Founders Fund and Clarium Capital. During our discussion, we dug deep into the initialized model, including portfolio construction, decision-making, how they think about diversity within the firm, and how to compete in what's become a white-hot market. So let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Alda, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to chat with you. I am too. And and we are going to get into your story, the initialized story, and some of the things that you and I talked about before this episode started. Let's go back a little bit. You've spent a lot of time in tech as an analyst and then playing both operating and legal roles at a variety of firms, ultimately moving into a full-time investing role. I think it was 2013 at 137 Ventures. What exactly did you really see that got you into investing versus being on the legal side? And how did you know at the time that investing was something that aligned with your skill set? You know, ever since I was little growing up in Texas, I had wanted to be a lawyer. And practicing law, I found to be engaging and exciting and intellectually challenging. And I was in-house as a general counsel at Founders Fund. And I began to get excited by the companies we were investing in, the relationships with the founders, working with companies early on. But I realized that my skill set at that time didn't have a lot of entrepreneurial um, aspects of it. And so when Sean Parker left to go start Airtime, it seemed like a good opportunity to go and see what things were like. And especially at a firm called like Founders Fund, where the name is literally Founders Fund, you can't help but feel that entrepreneurial bug. And I still think even today, and this was, you know, like 15 years ago, we do have a certain reverence for founders in our tech ecosystem. And so I wanted to see what it was like to be on you know, the other side. And I, I knew in the back of my mind that if I wanted to move to investing, understanding what it was like to start a company would be a crucial part of it. And so I really felt like that time at airtime uh, was the bridge between the legal world and the investing world, even though it may not be obvious. Were there certain things that made you comfortable that you can step into an investing role and be successful? I mean, as you've worked with some of these great uh, investors over time, whether it be at Founders Fund or some of the other firms you've worked at, are there specific traits that you saw that were really translatable from what you were doing at Airtime or Founders Fund that you felt would be a clear bridge into going full-time and investing and really backing some of these entrepreneurs you were so excited about? I think great investors come from all walks of life and with many different talent and skill sets. I would say even, you know, going back to my youth, I always really enjoyed working at jobs in which I felt like I was helping people. And uh, that's why Initialize has been a great fit, I think, for me, because we spend so much time working with our portfolio companies. One of our measures of success is how helpful we can be with our our, our companies. Um, and so, you know, other funds have different things that they differentiate themselves on. But for us, it is that ethos of, you know, wanting to 
be a service provider. And I know that sometimes that's not a great thing to say, um, but to our portfolio companies that I think uh, really makes me excited about the work that we're doing. I do like the lens and it. I, I have said this, you know, both publicly and in private conversations that ultimately in today's world where capital is so commoditized that you ultimately are a service provider, you're building a company that happens to be an investment firm. When you did join Initialize, and I believe that was 2017, probably around Fund 3 when it was being deployed, were there certain aspects of, of Initialize that really got you excited Given your experience, of course, there's probably other opportunity costs. It seems like early stage investing is what you wanted. But what about the ethos in particular did you find so compelling about Initialized? Absolutely. I think it's part of what I alluded to in terms of our um, desire to be value add, taking those dollars. And, you know, I think a lot of your listeners are, you know, early stage uh, investors or, or wanting to be investors. It's hard to take the small management fee dollars that you have and put them into building out services and support and a team to really help those portfolio companies. And I think it's especially hard to do what was prior hard to do at seed because you're talking about fund sizes that might be five, 10, 15, $20 million. And that's all on a management fee and schools are expensive. Housing is expensive. It's an expensive place um, to live. And, so I appreciated how Gary put the capital into building out a team to help portfolio companies. He, he's had, he had a great reputation. In addition to being helpful, is also being very high integrity. And I think that's something that has stayed with us for every single hire that we make and that we look for is that empathy um, as, as really part of the core of our values. You know, something that I always find really interesting is just tracking the arc of the firm as it grows. And I remember... Initialized when it first started was a sub $10 million fund, obviously did very well with a company called Coinbase that I think everyone knows about. We'll get into that investment. Well, don't forget Instacart too. Instacart, right? So you have a massive, two massive opportunities within the same fund. But now the fund has obviously grown and evolved. The market has also evolved. As you look at today's market where things are much more competitive, more capital chasing entrepreneurs, and of course, all of that feels like it's been amplified pretty dramatically over the last 15 months since COVID started. What does it mean to compete effectively? Yes, you have your service model. You've built that ethos from day one. How are you looking at the competitive market today? And as a generalist, how do you win in today's world? Yeah, I, I had um, sort of said that most seed funds are small. And that was kind of ironic because, you know, Andreessen just announced a $400 million seed fund. Um, and what we're seeing increasingly more is these large multi-stage firms that have, you know, they raise billions of dollars at a time uh, that are now really trying to invest at seed. And so you're absolutely right. The market is very strong, which is good for founders. And so I'm obviously supportive of it. Um, but there's definitely more competition when you've got a firm that has you know, maybe a $3 billion fund across their core, early growth, whatever. It's definitely the situation where a $1 to $3 million check is perhaps not as meaningful from an overall, uh, you know, portfolio construction perspective. And so the ways that I've had conversations with folks uh, internally and externally about competing are, you know, valuation, 
increases, um, shorter time for diligence, uh, spending more time on proving your value add, uh, making sure your founder references are tight, looking you know farther and wider in terms of geography and sector, uh, going earlier. These are all various ideas that people have for how can we compete. And I think that you'll find with each firm, they've they've gathered a few of these. Another one is lowering your ownership requirements to try to make sure that you're in the best companies. I think that's right. And there's many ways, of course, you can choose to compete in today's world, whether it's being more flexible on things like ownership or check size, or looking in areas that don't have the amount of capital concentration the major hubs do. But what I'm curious about is, is understanding within initialized, are there things that you've done over the last 16 or 17 months that have been modified in some way to really account for what is a rapidly evolving seed stage market? Yeah, I mean, I think of that uh, sort of menu of, of options, you know, we've tried to still hold firm on our ownership percentage, um, but certainly have been more flexible on the valuation side of things. And so what's that resulted in is that our check first check size went up from between two to three million to between uh, four to five million. And our sector and our stage has stayed pretty consistent. You know, we are investing pre-product market fit, which used to be called seed. I, I don't really know what it is called now. Um, so we've tried to maintain some consistency and certainly uh, moving rapidly and doing your work quickly uh, is is something that I think all firms should have been doing from day one because the most valuable thing is a founder's time and you don't want to waste it. You're touching on something that I think is really important to highlight in the speed of inefficiency that venture firms now need to operate at. And it's very difficult to win deals consistently in the way that things historically were, where you could spend weeks getting to know the founder, the team, understanding the industry, talking to customers, and all of that's now truncated to a time that in some cases is a week or two. How do you then balance that against ensuring that you're not taking on too much risk because you can't do the level of diligence that you once were? You know, my prior firm was 137 Ventures, which was is later stage. And um, I think it's a bigger issue at the later stage than for early pre-product market fit, because essentially... I would say the you know majority or at least half of the calculus is really based on the founders and their expertise, their internal metal, and how compelling you think they can be on you know recruiting, business development, product iteration, and, and those things I think require at least less third party diligence. I remember when I was at 137, I I, I began to worry because we were seeing this sort of troubling series of companies in which there had been fraud or, um, you know, like what, what is the amount of diligence that we should be doing? Should we be asking for their password to their online bank uh, and actually get the bank statements? Because most of the time we take the numbers in the deck as true. And then obviously there's this leap of faith that you take that they are true. Um, fortunately, having moved earlier stage, there are no numbers uh, there are no numbers to evaluate generally, and there's no, there are really no meaningful bank statements to review. And so what you're really trying to, to weed out is bad actors, uh, people who 
after you give them money, maybe you're not going to do what they say they're going to do with it. And um, I don't know if that's easier or harder, but uh, at least it doesn't require, you know, as much in terms of the way of like, you know, a financial autopsy, that type of thing. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up during the uh, the kickoff of the uh, the Theranos court uh, case, which, of course, now is going on. I, I don't think that's representative of traditional Silicon Valley. In fact, I'm not aware of any Silicon Valley VC firms that were big investors or investors at all into the company. But your point around, yes, there is a chance for fraud to happen when things are moving so quickly, particularly at the later stages when people are moving so quick to get into these deals. But beyond that, are there other things that you can do to fast track, ensuring that even at the early stages, you're moving with a level of speed? I, what struck me is like some of the companies you've backed, and I'll go back to Coinbase, for example. Brian Armstrong, when he started the company, it's not like he had this long history in financial markets. In fact, he was at Airbnb prior to starting Coinbase. Are there any themes that you've observed with all of the reps that Initialize has had that lead you to believe a particular entrepreneur can be successful? And if so, what are some of those guiding points that, in, that are part of the internal calculus? You know, Brian was um, part of the uh, anti-fraud security team at Airbnb, and there's obviously a lot of overlap with um, expertise in that sector and crypto. Uh, but crypto, you know, wasn't a thing in 2012. And I think part of what we are paid to do is try to find the next big thing and um, think outside the box. And this is something that I have gotten more comfortable with as I've you know matured as an investor is that sometimes you just have to believe and take a chance that, hey, this could be big. And fortunately, you know, we take a basket approach to our investments. And so you can bet on lots of crazy things. And if one of them is awesome and becomes huge, then, you know, you look really smart and people don't pay as much attention to these other crazy things that you invested in that didn't pan out. What you're speaking to is really the art of possible. In, in some cases, actually taking a leap of faith that a particular entrepreneur is going to be able to bend the arc on something and create a very different future in whatever they're trying to solve for. But you, it, it's also difficult, though, because you see so many companies, you're actually paid to say no in many ways because you're going to see so many companies. How do you really manage between seeing the art of possible, but also taking a pragmatic approach to investing, understanding that a lot of ideas ultimately are not going to work either because it's not the right entrepreneur, it's not the right solution for the problem, or it's just too early. How do you think about all those things and get to a yes on something that isn't yet clear is going to work? Yeah, I mean, I have been thinking about this a lot. I think that there are a large group, probably the majority of the companies that come our way are not in this moonshot out of this world type of category, right? Um, they are solving everyday problems. Maybe it's a dev tool or maybe it's, um, you know, trying to make a, 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 a marketplace like more efficient through software. And so I actually think that this category of this is crazy, but it could be a thing is is a minority. And certainly it's not everything that we're looking for. But, um, you know, I think it's really a question of portfolio construction and what percent of your portfolio 
you want to, uh, you know, take some really big swings with. So how does that translate then? And I'm glad you brought up the, uh, the point of portfolio construction because it's a widely debated one. And there's, from my perspective, many ways you can make money. You can have a small concentrated portfolio and it works for certain people. And there's the, uh, the alternative approach, which is you take a lot of shots at goal. You know, you have a small portion of the portfolio that either is your pilot checks or really the moonshot. Don't know if they're going to work, but if they work, they're going to be really big. How do you construct your portfolio and what is your internal view on the right number of companies in a portfolio for a firm like yours? And really just how do you then look at initial investments versus follow-ons? So this has evolved um, a lot and uh, will probably continue to evolve. And, you know, we have the extra complexity of, you know, we do try to be very hands-on. And so there is a sort of a limiting reagent of our own resources and the time of uh, the time that our team can spend. But, you know, I would say our first few funds had a lot of companies. Uh, we had, um, you know, 80 to 100 companies in our first two funds. And, you know, we've slowly been tightening the aperture a little bit, but, you know, we are early investors and, um, you know, taken with the lens of what's made us successful in the past. I think it's a, it's a good compromise between, you know, being a manageable amount of companies in terms of our um, working with them, as well as still giving us, you know, the ability to have a, a variety of companies in the portfolio. Well, it's hard to compare the recent funds to the first fund, which was much smaller, but I am curious, were there any tipping points within the firm, whether it was firm size, evolution of service model, that really made it very clear that fewer companies in a portfolio made more sense versus sticking with a formula that seemed to work really well in the early days? The, the first few funds uh, didn't have uh, real teams around, around supporting the companies. And so it was certainly more sustainable to, you know, sort of, do a smaller check and, you know, hope for the best. But, uh, but now, you know, we are taking uh, significant ownership stakes and um, meeting with those companies on a very regular basis, at least, you know, once a month, some founders I talk to, you know, once a week. Um, given that that's, you know, part of the value system, as we talked about earlier, it made more sense to try to bring that to a more manageable number of companies, given that we have six partners uh, and a growing team. And I think it will help us make better follow-on investment decisions as well. Yeah, so you're spending more time with these companies. The, the one thing that I also have sort of observed and it struck me as part of our conversations is as you spend more time with the companies, the type of entrepreneurs you're backing often look and feel different than maybe what we saw five or 10 years ago, much more diversity within the portfolio. And you in particular have spent a lot of time thinking about these different markets We've seen the market explode in terms of number of companies getting funded, actually, and more appropriately, the dollars going into those companies. But I was shocked to see that funding going into women-led companies had actually decreased during 2020. What do you believe was the reason for that? And are there certain characteristics within the venture market that are leading to progress not going the way we thought it was and maybe even reversing to a certain degree? This is, you know, obviously a very troubling trend. And we saw on the whole, many, many women just leave the workforce entirely because their children were doing distance learning at home. And, um, 
you know, somebody had to make sure that they were fed and online at the, at the correct time. I'm not sure that that's, you know, why we've seen this trend, but I think overall there are not enough, uh, you know, female check writers. There's not enough diverse check writers. And that's actually why I was interested in talking to you about your company, because I think that allowing more GPs to raise funds um, will allow for more diversity and a more and more diversity of thought, which should hopefully allow people to have more perspectives on the types of founders that they want to invest in. So let's talk about that, because I also feel like there's a trickle down effect. You know, you have more LPs that are funding more diverse GPs will then invest in more diverse founders, typically speaking. And those diverse founders often then employ people that often are diverse or underrepresented. If you had a blank sheet of paper and were to were tasked with fixing this problem, how would you go about doing something outside of what you're already doing within the shop, which I know is is quite extensive in backing you know, a lot of female-led companies? How would you go about fixing it? I would start with the LP side of things. And I've had many conversations with LPs about why they're not backing newer emerging fund managers. And, you know, the most common answer I get is that they don't have the bandwidth to, you know, screen all of these managers and manage the relationships. And I think that's what is at the very, very um, core of it is we need money to be flowing into the emerging managers to have this trickle up effect. Right. And so if we could even get, you know, with these and and foundations and endowments, a 10, $20 million carve out of to do, you know, three to $5 million per, per emerging manager, I think that would have a huge impact on things. Um, And I, I get that it's more work and you have to talk to that many more people and we have the same problem. And I think another thought that I had about the sort of market is there's been the sort of flocking to a certain type of founder with a certain type of pedigree and background that I've seen a whole lot of activity. And uh, there's a whole another sector of founders that have seen less activity than they normally would have. Um, but I think the crux of all of it is getting money in. And that starts with the LPs. I think that's right in that it does start with the LP. The challenge often is with institutionals, which of course comprise the vast majority of capital going into funds, is that there's often a misalignment in incentives with the institution versus funds, especially emerging managers that might be smaller, less proven. And it becomes difficult to really unlock that if there isn't true financial inclusion, which includes the non-institutional investors, which historically have been locked out to a very large degree. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think in order to motivate anyone to do things, you have to think about what what their incentives are, right? And so you've got LPs that are um, at the institutions and endowments who, you know, their, their upside is fixed, right? You know, they're getting a base salary and then maybe their bonus is up to 100% of that salary each year. And Sure, it's you can be proud and say like my portfolio outperformed, um, and there's some bragging rights involved. But you know, I'm a firm believer that you have to figure out how to properly motivate people. Um, and you you gave a great example in terms of the performance of emerging managers and how they've outperformed uh, in order to 
get uh, movement moving movement in that in that direction that we want. Do you think it's also a key thing that all of these LPs should focus on, um, which I actually you know wrote about yesterday, which is getting more younger uh, allocators on the team, more diverse allocators. I had this conversation with a a very smart allocator who is is female. She's backed a number of female managers, done fantastic from a uh, performance standpoint. And she was telling me that only a small group, I think it was less than 15% of decision makers at some of these big endowments and foundations are women. How much of that plays into a role in terms of the capital that then goes into the underrepresented, the, the female founders? And is there a bias perhaps that's embedded within these organizations because they're used to backing a certain archetype of, of GP? I mean, I, I think that the saying, oh, well, not the saying, but, you know, the, the common belief is, you know, no one ever got fired for backing X fund, you know, like Sequoia, Excel, whatever, right? And, you know, when your upside is sort of fixed to this base salary plus maybe like 100% bonus, like there's not a lot of incentive for risk taking, right? Um, your answer is very clear when someone asks you why you invented it, invested in this fund versus one that was earlier and more risky. I, I think like you do bring up an easy way. Uh, well, first of all, like I think there needs to be some measure of success based on, uh, you know, who, who you're backing, right? And it's, I, I don't know if that's, you know, we sort of at initialize, we, we want to have a number of diverse or underrepresented candidates for any particular job. You know, that's that's one way of doing it in terms of the, the funnel. But then if we do, like, let's say we do execute on this plan and we have more LPs that are actually now backing, you know, emerging managers and many of those emerging managers are diverse. They're backing diverse founders. They're employing diverse employees and solving problems that, you know, actually are for the 99%, not just for the 1% that reside in like air metros like Silicon Valley. What is the societal benefit? So if we were, we were making a pitch to all of the endowments in the world and saying, okay, well, yes, there's economic merit in doing this, but if this is done, and it, let's say every single endowment and foundation institutional creates a $20, $20 million carve for this, what does the world look like in five years? I don't know if it's a five-year time period, but I do think that we will we would have more geographic diversity, we would have more sector diversity, we would have more founder diversity, and... I would be shocked if the success rate were, you know, materially different than what we're seeing with, you know, more pedigreed founders who come from a traditional, you know, cut out of central casting type of background. You know, I, I think that the problems that they would be tackling uh, would be, you know, also more diverse. You know, I think we would see less dev tools and, you know, crypto and, you know, we've got like 25 crypto funds and I think we can't know of like one family tech fund. It might make sense to look more over here where less people are looking. I have been seeing more uh, institutional LPs ask about the the teams under the GPs and, um, you know, even just asking the question about diversity and how you think about hiring, I think has, it has been moving things in that direction, right? So now I think most firms have at least one female GP now um, and, you know, that's progress. So Thanks for at least asking the questions, I would say. How do you think this actually translates from a decision-making standpoint from the LP perspective? Is it something that they're asking out of curiosity, or do you feel like it's really driving their decision model on which funds to back? 
Well, I mean, here's where it's making a difference is, you know, like I frequently have people that are saying like, oh, we want to hire a third partner and we would like it to be, you know, a female partner. I mean, I probably heard that half a dozen times in the last year. When you have a two, a two or three person partnership and one voice is saying something, it's hard to ignore it, right? Like that partner is going to be able to make some investment decisions. And so that that is that is an impact that's that's actually changing things so i guess i wouldn't be as cynical to think that they i think it's very hard to bring in someone as a partner and not let them do any deals and even if some of the deals they do you know are um more traditional that's totally fine you know um but i i actually do think it's having an impact i think that's great to hear and and certainly all the big firms have hired partners that are either bpoc or or female or sometimes even both but the challenge is not only just bringing somebody in, but giving them enough oxygen to act like a partner. And it becomes tougher as organizations get longer in the tooth. They've been around. You have partners that have been around together for a very long time, and you're you're now inputting somebody brand new. And forgetting about diversity for a second, you actually joined Initialize, you know, several years after it was founded. And at the time, you had two managing partners in Alexis and Gary. What has Initialize done internally that allows there to be equal voices at the table for newer partners like yourself to come in? And what are the things that you think other firms should look to uh, to emulate based on that strategy? Well, you know, we, we do try to have um, a diverse candidate pool for our hiring. Uh, our firm is run by Jen Wolf. Uh, she's our president and partner. Uh, this is, I, I would say, you know, a very important issue for her. And, you know, we have... Uh, you know, all of our Mondays are spent in, in team meetings. Um, we're doing a, you know, a retreat in person, knock on wood, in a couple of weeks. And so I, I've never felt a sense of not being able to express opinions. You know, opinions are welcome and, uh, and taken into account. And, you know, it, it goes right back to, you know, how we want to run our firm. And, um, and that's with, you know, a lot of uh, empathy and diversity of thought. If we pull on that thread a little bit more and think about a culture whereby even new partners to a firm have the ability to feel comfortable, they have a voice, there's enough oxygen in the room to promote that diversity of thought. Have you found there to be certain ingredients or culture characteristics that need to be in place to ensure it? It doesn't have to be done the way that Initialize has done it. I've seen very successful firms run where they're just like, you know, we're all sort of lone wolves. Everyone has $50 million of our, you know, $150 million fund. And here's your slug. That totally works, right? And you don't always have to come together and discuss everything and have some semblance of, of consensus around investment decisions. Um, so there's there's many ways to do it. But certainly having an open-mindedness to, to welcome other viewpoints and be willing to blend your returns with someone else's perspective is is necessary. Decision making, I think, is always an interesting topic to uh, to discuss. And how are decisions actually made? What's inside that boardroom, and how are those conversations being had? And are there certain things from a decision making standpoint, tactically, that you've built that really enable this diversity of thought? Take us inside, you know, a typical deal meeting. We have built our own internal software. It's called Folio. And we do a pre-vote on Folio to get everyone's list of diligence questions, their concerns. We'll flesh out the investment memo before that in a final vote. 
Uh, and the investment memo will tackle a whole host of issues, you know, competition, market size, um, you know, you know, founder background, diligence, and and then we run a final vote. Uh, we do uh, allow for, uh, you know, I think we don't need to have a hundred percent consensus uh, with with six partners. I certainly know some firms that that have a, a more consensus driven model. Um, roughly, it's probably sort of two strong yeses works for getting um, a deal done, and then there there's room for you know some high conviction single strong yes investments that. That, that you can do if, if it really is, is out there. Um, most of the time, you know, we want to defer to the lead partner. And so I don't see, you know, we, we rarely see strong no's. And in general, you know, if, if you see something and you're my partner that you believe in, I'm willing to give you the, the, the benefit of, of, you know, respecting your judgment. In cases when there is a single high conviction partner on a particular deal and it's a single yes, strong yes, do you modify in any way the check sizes into that company or is the model, whether it's two yeses or one, if you have conviction or somebody has conviction with the firm, they have the full ability to write the traditional check that really adheres to whatever model that you're building in terms of your average check size into a company? We don't, you know, think in terms of value investing. We don't think in terms of, you know, the bar should be lower at this dollar amount. Um, I think, you know, conviction is conviction and it really shouldn't change uh, based on price. One common challenge that I've seen a lot of firms deal with is when you have a culture that doesn't always require consensus decision making and where a partner can make a single yes turn into a deal being done is balancing between ensuring that the partner doesn't feel like they have a bullseye on their back if it doesn't work out, but also having a level of accountability such that those type of deals are truly reserved for the highest conviction opportunities. How do you think about that? And what do you do with an initialize to ensure that you can balance between accountability and a culture that promotes that diversity of thought? I mean, I think what you're describing is like a cultural a culture of guilt and shaming, which I, I think is unhealthy for families. And, you know, I think we think of our, our, our company as a family. And I, 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 think, I don't think that would be a, a very welcoming environment. What you want is healthy debate, healthy conversation, and then really disagree and commit. Well, you, you brought up so many really interesting things. And I know that you've been now a full-time investor for nearly a decade. I want to go through a few few questions uh, with you rapid fire. Now that you've been an investor for nearly a decade, what's the most counterintuitive lesson that you've learned in investing and why has it been so surprising to you? I actually think that the best investors do less work and go with their gut more. They're celebrated for their wins and the wins out. They, they eclipse the, the bad decisions. And I think it's very natural for a, a more junior or a newer investor to be very conservative and, you know, want everything to check all the boxes uh, before they can take the plunge. And this, this is something that, you know, I've learned over the years, too, is just sometimes you just have to, like, jump. It's, it is counterintuitive because a lot of people have been following this overachiever path their entire lives, especially on the female investor side of things. You've got people who, you know, 
went to the best schools, got the best grades, did did all the things that they were supposed to do. And what we're asking for is the at the end of the day is like trust your gut. It's hard to do, especially at the beginning. When you're you're first starting to invest and you're you tend to be in risk mitigation mode, then you do risk seeking mode, which then leads people to miss um, some incredible category defining opportunities. I'm really curious on this next question, just because you've spent time both, you know, on the front lines of working with entrepreneurs, but also building a firm. And you've been in ops, you've worked as a CEO of a, of a portfolio company. As you think about all the components of running a firm, which of course are much more, more than what we've talked about in investing, what do you think are the most challenging things about building a durable firm? Hiring is challenging. Retention is challenging. I mean, this is the same question that uh, portfolio companies are, are struggling with every day. Generational change is challenging. Managing people is really, really hard because um, you want to make them successful. You're responsible for making them successful and the pieces all have to fit together. You know, that's why I'm so thankful that we have, have Jen at the helm at Initialize because she's had, you know, 20 plus years of managerial experience. And that the best thing is it's freed up, you know, Gary and myself and the investment team to really just be able to think about what should exist in this world. Yeah, it's interesting you bring it up because your former colleague, Justin, at 137 Ventures actually mentioned people as being the most critical and difficult thing to get right. So totally makes sense to me. The last question I have is name the in investor that you've met along your journey that's made the biggest impact on you. And what about them made that impact? I mean, it, will ha it would have to be Peter, right? Um, you know, he's a legendary investor. And you know, what I saw, and back then, you know, I was just doing the the legal paperwork for his deals, was that he did a bunch of things just because, right? He didn't have a, a protracted process. Um, he really trusted his gut. He wanted things to exist that were kind of out there. And, um, and all of those things, I think, have made him the amazing investor that he is. It's not a uh, bad person to consider as in, in terms of folks that you've worked with. Well, Alta, this has been a, a lot of fun. I really appreciate you being on the show, and it's great to see you again. Great to see you, too. Thanks for having me, Samir. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Alta. To learn more about her or Initialize Capital, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show and my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. 